There are certain truths that remain self-evident. All men are created equal. Timeless truths that need no justification or, and or are simple to understand. There are certain truths that are universal, no matter the time or place. Many of these we have codified for us in the preserved word of God. God has designed this world to function in a particular way. And his own character is the driving force behind these truths. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. These, and many more like them, ought to be realities in any and every society. Certain commands in the Bible can have specific conclusions or particular expected manifestations. Love your neighbor as yourself. Certain commands in the Bible can be more obscure and have varying degrees or manifestations of external expression. Okay, plain English for a second. There's some stuff that I read in here, okay, and it's hard for me to know exactly how to put it into practice. Practically, right, because that's what putting into practice means, practically. What does following this or that particular command look like in my life? Does it look exactly the same as the person next to me? We've been talking about stewardship over the last few weeks, and inevitably we were going to get to the point of talking explicitly about money, which we did a little last week, and really to the question of how much does God expect me to give back to him, or as I'll phrase it, how much does God expect me to give to my church? How does my introduction have anything to do with how much money I'm supposed to give to my church? You might be asking. Well, the answer is it has everything to do with how you understand the relationship between God's commands in the Old Testament and how those are applied or not applied in the New Testament. Certain commands in the Old Testament are built from certain universal truths. It is wrong to murder somebody, no matter the time or place. It is wrong to commit adultery, no matter the time or place. But is it okay for me to eat shrimp? Is homosexuality now legitimate? Do I have to maintain observance of a Sabbath day each week? Some of these questions are simple. Eat shrimp and bacon to your heart's content. Practicing homosexuality is still wrong. Multiple places, by multiple authors, these new and remaining truths are made clear to us. Others are more difficult to answer. Here's what we do know. The civil and ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you are not a Jew, then you do not have to live like a Jew. Let's break this down for a minute. The civil laws in the Old Testament were items like how to punish people for murder or theft. Premeditated murder brought the death penalty. Plain and simple. The ceremonial laws in the Old Testament were items like when and where people were to bring their sacrifices. 
what people could and could not eat. So what's left then, beyond the civil and the ceremonial laws, are the moral laws of God's word that we find in the Old Testament. And so what's left for us as Christians is to understand how to apply the moral law of God in our lives under the New Testament. What does following the moral commands of God look like in my life as a New Testament Gentile disciple of Christ? So we're several minutes into our sermon here, and there's a chance that some of you might be thinking, what are you talking about? You lost me at civil and ceremonial. This is for like, you know, a classroom setting, not a sermon. So, okay, maybe this will help if we take a step back and look at the history of where of what we're talking about, of where this is all coming from. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, we all know about this. Up to that point in history, Israel or Abraham's offspring, God's chosen people had not really governed themselves. Their God was the one true God, Yahweh. But because they were slaves in Egypt, for hundreds of years, and they had only been around as God's chosen people for a couple generations before they were slaves in Egypt, before they went to Egypt, really, and then became slaves later on, they did not have laws to govern themselves. So Moses leads them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and God makes a covenant with them, a promise to them, that they also reciprocated back to him to be his chosen people, fully aware, accepting it for themselves as one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, or something like that. So God gives Moses a constitution, as it were, a bill of rights, the Ten Commandments. How is this nation supposed to live? By what laws are they going to be governed? And Particularly, it's simply by loving God and loving their neighbor. Boiled down, that's what the Ten Commandments were. They were the foundation of this new society that Moses had led into the wilderness. And as you keep reading in the book of Exodus, of God giving this law to his people, he also gives consequences for when people disobey these commandments. God is setting up a government for a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. This government is not a government with democratically elected officials, though. God is king. God is the judge. God is to be worshipped. But on that point of worship, how? How were the Israelites supposed to properly worship God? So this is why God gives instructions on the building of the tabernacle and makes particular people priests. God is to be formally worshipped in a particular way, and God is to be informally worshipped in every way. So in both general and specific ways, God is to be informally worshipped in every aspect of the life of his people. And this is much of what the book of Deuteronomy describes for us. For everyday people, how does God expect his people to live before him, before their neighbors, before the world? Deuteronomy helps to answer these questions. But back to formalities, how is God to be formally worshipped? And not only that, but how are people supposed to formally exercise God's laws that he's given? And this is a lot of what the book of Leviticus records for us. God sets aside a certain tribe in Israel, one of the 12 tribes, the Levites, 
which is where we get the word Leviticus, Levite, Leviticus. He sets aside these men to formally offer the sacrifices that God requires. When you look at how many sacrifices were to be made and the particular ways in which they were to be made, it took time and understanding and skill. They had to be done in a certain way and in a certain place. God didn't just want anybody doing these things. And since the worship of God was primary in this newly established nation, he intended the Levites and the priests to be the officials responsible for governance. He made it the job of the Levites and priests to uphold the laws, to exercise judgment concerning the laws, to teach the laws. In Israel's government structure, God called these men to serve in his regime. But if these Levites, okay, and here's where we're finally getting to the point. But if these Levites are supposed to be busy working as officials under God's new government, how are they going to provide for themselves? Well, I'm glad you asked. This brings us to our matter at hand. Tithes. Tithes. Where do they come from? Where do they go? Cotton-eyed Joe. Right? <laughs> Tithes were given. Tithes were given so that the Levites and priests had provision. The Levites weren't given their own land to work year-round. They were busy traveling to where the tabernacle was and where the temple was and serving there for extended periods of time throughout the year. The Levites and the priests had particular duties in a particular time, in a particular place. So when Jesus comes around and does away with the sacrificial system by offering himself as the final and full sacrifice for all sin, for all time, do the Levites still serve in the same way? No. So as the gospel moves to the Gentiles, which we are, I'm pretty sure all of us are Gentiles. I don't think any of us are Jews in here. How are they supposed to now understand the Old Testament commands like the tithe? And here's the, the good news. Even if you have no idea what I've been rambling about for the last 10 minutes, now is your chance to jump back on our wagon. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to look at tithes, sort of. Last week we were in 2 Corinthians 9, so don't be confused. We're in 1 Corinthians 9 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to be verses 1 through 14, if you would follow along. Starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the threshers thresh in hope 
of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, we could keep reading through the end of chapter 9, but what you're not going to find, what we didn't find already, is the tithe in there. Did you see it in there? I didn't. Paul does not reference a tithe when he talks about giving to support the ministry of the church and particularly the ministers of the church. Notice that he even talks about the Levites and the priests in the old sacrificial system, the old government as it were in the Old Testament. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? The Corinthians would recognize this probably both for the temples that were there in Corinth at the time and then also understand it from the Old Testament way of doing things, the Old Testament sacrificial system. They would say, oh, Paul's talking about the Levites. How were they provided for in their service to God and their service to God's people? They would understand that. They would recognize it. But God, through Paul... Doesn't say anything about a tithe. And then look at how he compares that to what is to happen now in the church. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. When he says the same way, he doesn't mean that pastors are supposed to eat the meat from the sacrifices that are offered in the temple. I don't see any temples around here, and I don't see any animals being sacrificed. And I'm not going to encourage that. There is no temple. There are no sacrifices any longer. Jesus Christ has become our once and for all sacrifice. And so as God's people now in the new covenant, we don't sacrifice animals. So preachers don't eat that meat. What do they get? Or really back to the point at hand, what are people supposed to give to the church so that the pastors can eat? What did Paul say here in these verses? Notice the lack of specifics when it comes to what the people who make up the church are supposed to give to the church for the ministry of the church. Paul doesn't say give your tithes and offerings. Now you may be sitting there thinking, well certainly there are other places in the New Testament where it tells Christians how much they are supposed to give. And I would say, yes, you're right. We looked at that last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because that's really the only place. Do you remember how much Paul said we are to give? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You are supposed to give as much as you have decided in your heart. No specifics. But here's the problem even with giving you that answer. As we talked about, really for the last two weeks, Paul is talking to the Corinthians there about a special offering for the poor in Jerusalem. 
When Paul gives that instruction and encouragement to the church, he's not even talking about how much they are to be regularly giving to the church for the regular work of the ministry of that church. He's talking about a special one-time offering, and in turn, only incidentally, giving the church general principles about God's perspective concerning their heart toward giving. I do think it is fair to extrapolate those principles out and seek to be individuals and families and a church who are cheerful givers. But don't lose sight of the context there if you do. God does not want our begrudging submission. And I think that's maybe one reason why he doesn't give us specifics in this matter. He called us to be his people, a people saved by his grace through faith. And going back to where we started in this series on stewardship a few weeks ago, we began by talking about grace. We all need reminding about God's grace. So I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon again or read 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 again. Really, anywhere in the Bible, because everywhere you see extensions of God's grace. We are stewards of God's grace. Let me just quickly put it this way. Your parents have given you a croquet set. Croquet is a multiple-person game. I mean, you can go out there on your own and whack the ball around in the yard, but you're supposed to be playing with other people because you're supposed to be whacking their balls too, right? I mean, that's the fun part of croquet. And your parents tell you that maybe you should ask your siblings to play with you sometime. And maybe you should take it over to your friend's house to play with them. If my parents have to force me to let others play with me, Everyone's losing at that point. The parents are mad because I'm not really enjoying the game how they intended it to to be enjoyed. I'm mad because they're making me do something I don't want to do. My friends aren't having any fun because I'm not in a good mood. Right? The gift is wasted. It's a universal truth that God owns everything. It has always been that way, and it will always be that way. He created everything, so he owns everything. The grace you experience in your life is a gift from him. The financial provision that you experience in your life is a gift from him. But neither of those gifts is meant to be yours and yours alone. God is a giver, and he means his people to be givers in turn. A heart truly changed is a heart committed to giving. It's a heart committed to playing croquet with other people. Time, resources, energy, emotions, money. All because they are not your time. They're not your resources. They're not your energy. They're not your emotions. It's not your money. They are God's. So we have to stop acting like everything we've been given is just for us. Or even that it's only ours in the first place. So it is with money. 
we have been commanded to give back to God. But how much? How much do I give? Some people would answer that question by getting slightly legalistic and saying that you have to tithe, which simply means 10%. That's what the word tithe means. It's a 10%, a tenth. Give 10% of your gross income back to the church. The problem is that Paul never says that. Jesus never says that. Peter never says that. John never says that. And even if you wanted to extrapolate out the Old Testament tithe and superimpose that onto the New Testament church, the first thing that we need to understand is that the Old Testament tithe was not what you probably think it was. It's understood by most biblical scholars that there was more than one tithe expected from Israel. There were actually likely three distinct different tithes. There was a regular tithe, which is probably what we think of, a festival tithe, and a charity tithe every three years was the charity tithe. Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 14. And even if the charity tithe, that third one, was related to the regular tithe, it's still widely regarded that Israelites were expected to give somewhere closer to 20% of their income back to God through these tithes, not just 10%. Not only that, but when you read about tithes, whenever Moses writes about it, almost in every instance, it's not just tithes. It's tithes and offerings. That's why we still have that language of tithes and offerings. Vow offerings, free will offerings. These would have been in addition to the tithes. So how much did Israel give back to God? Well, I mean, it's probably somewhere closer to 25% or more of what God blessed them with year by year. And the other thing I want to point out or talking about this, is that some of these tithes, namely the festival tithe that I mentioned a minute ago, were meant to be enjoyed by the people themselves in a huge celebration or party every year. Let me read it to you from Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 29. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God... In the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand, And go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, 
and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So we notice that if you believe that God still intends for us to follow the pattern of tithing that he set forth in the Old Testament, it's way more complicated than just giving 10% back to the church. The church exists throughout the world, and there is no longer a centralized place where the money has to go. We have no temple, no priests, no Levites who sacrifice for us. So let's agree to a few things. Number one, the tithe that we normally like to associate with the Old Testament is not as simple and straightforward as giving exactly 10% back to God. The tithe that we normally like to associate with the Old Testament is not as simple and straightforward as giving exactly 10% back to God. The second thing, some of the tithes that God expected were to be part of a celebration or party that his people threw in a particular place, eating and drinking whatever your heart craved, desired. Sounds great, though. I think we should totally do that. Number three. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Churros all the way. Number three. The Levites particularly, were meant to be the usual beneficiaries of the tithes. But they were also periodically to be shared with the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, as we read there from Deuteronomy 14. Now, from all of what I've said or haven't said so far, I want to pose two questions and give some general answers. The first question, how should the money the church receives be spent. This probably should be the second question, but whatever. How should the money the church receives be spent? Three answers, one which was pretty clear in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Number one, to support the pastor or pastors. We read 1 Corinthians 9, and Paul made it crystal clear. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 9, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. We don't have priests and Levites anymore, but we do have ministers of the gospel who should receive their support from the gospel. It's a similar idea that carries over from the Old Testament to the New, and it leads us to number two, giving to the poor. The first thing, support the pastor. The second thing, giving to the poor. 2 Corinthians 9, Deuteronomy 14, that we just read, both give us examples of what money devoted to God should go toward. And namely, it should help go toward the poor. Old and New Testament, there's precedent there. So our third answer to how should the money the church receives be spent, it should support the pastors, it should give be given to the poor, And it should advance gospel work. To enable the meeting of God's people together, we need spaces that can accommodate our meetings, our gatherings. It costs money and resources for these spaces and these gatherings. It also costs money to send out missionaries. They are gospel workers who need our financial support in order to go to the ends of the earth 
to proclaim the gospel, to build new communities of faith, new churches, and to then send disciples out on mission from there to repeat the cycle to other places. How should the money the church receives be spent? It should support the pastors. It should be given to the poor. And it should advance gospel work. The second question. What money should the church receive from its members? What money should the church receive from its members? Put it a little bit differently and maybe more personally. How much money am I supposed to give to my church? Whether you're 6 or 16 or 68. And I'm presupposing here that your local church is the best way to give the first fruits of your income. If you have a different perspective, I would love to hear it when I'm not monologuing. I believe the church should be the regular primary recipient of the money you are giving back to God. Your local church should be the regular primary recipient of the money you are giving back to God. It centralizes our efforts. It allows us to work together to proclaim the gospel here and abroad and to support the poor. But frankly, we've just spent the last however many minutes I've been up here with me really not giving you a clear answer to how much you're supposed to give. And I can't answer that question for you. It's not as easy as saying, give your tithe. And my understanding of how the Bible is speaking to us as new covenant believers, it's not as easy as saying, give your tithe and your offerings. You have to decide in your heart what to give. And I want you to give however much allows you to be, as we read about last week, however much allows you to be a cheerful giver. I don't want you to give under compulsion or out of begrudging submission. According to the grace that you have received, I want you to give generously as an expression of your gratitude toward God for what he has blessed you with. I want us to give generously as a way of acknowledging the people he has called to serve, to serve you and to serve the church, those who equip you to advance the work of the gospel here in Abingdon, and however far God allows us to extend our reach. Personally, my family's practice, my practice, for over the last 15 years, and even probably longer than that, just don't want to give an incorrect exact number. Has been to give at least 10% to the church. And then also support others who are doing the work of the ministry around me and around the world. For some people, that number should be closer to 5%. Others, it should be closer to 30%. Sort of like what the Old Testament people had to do. 
Where are you? Candidly, if you haven't already, I would ask you to sit down and figure out if you are satisfied with what you are currently giving to the church. I hope when you hear me say that, that you're hearing my heart and not automatically recoiling with a response that questions why I'm encouraging you to do that. Why should we expect to be spiritually and materially blessed in our giving if we're not giving sacrificially? Why should we expect to be spiritually and materially blessed in our giving if we're not giving sacrificially? As a church, as the Vine Church, we are spending our money, our time, our energy, pouring back into you so that you may be equipped to do the work of the ministry. The church buys these books, right? How many of those books have you bought? None, I don't think. We buy these books every month so that you can better understand God through his word and better understand how to put it into practice your faith, how to put your faith into practice. And, and then lately, we've been gathering together and eating pizza while we're doing it to celebrate, to enjoy the flavors that God has given to us. We spend a little bit of that money together enjoying God's creations, like pizza. You're paying me some money as your pastor so that I can put in the time to teach you to pray for you, to lead you. We're supporting the Millers, who in August are moving to the Middle East so that they can proclaim the gospel in a land hostile to Christ. At any time, whether you are a member or a prospective member, we are happy to share with you exactly how we are spending the money that you graciously give regularly. What I want to do is I want to leave you with a few questions that I've actually printed off. Um, Colt, would you pass these out? Just do like one per family. That might be enough for everybody. Anyways, I just want to leave us with a few questions along the lines of the topic of money. Just things to consider this week. Sit down with your husband, with your wife, with yourself, and ask with your kids. Ask these questions. What do I consider good use of my money? And why? What do I consider good use of my money? What in my background or personality shapes my use of money? Whom do I look down on for their use of money? And why? Where am I proud or self-righteous concerning finances? I want these to be a few questions seriously considered because what I don't want is for us to be a people who have not taken seriously the blessings that God has given to us. 
I want us to be able to understand why we spend our money the way that we do. If that lines up with how God would desire us to be spending our money. If we're giving like we should be giving. If we're supporting the right people. If I have a twisted view because I'm jealous that other people have more money than me and how they spend it. Or I think people who have less money than me should be spending theirs better because they don't have as much of it. I want to make sure I ask the question of whether I think I'm the one who has earned all that I have or whether I truly, at the beginning and end of the day, realize that it is God who is giving me what I have. And that though, yes, I have put in the time and the work to earn whatever I'm getting, I'm only able to do that because God has given me the skill. God has given me the education. God has blessed me with the time and the ability and the resources to be where I am. So I, I pray that we would ask questions like these of ourselves to gauge where we're at when it comes to money. And that might help us in revealing to ourselves whether or not we are being cheerful givers back toward God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the grace to talk about and consider what is often viewed as a very personal matter like money, like tithing or giving to the church. God, we need your grace to understand our hearts in this matter, really as in all matters, but especially in this because it's been made clear to us by Christ himself that we cannot serve both you and money. Help us to not fall into the trap of desiring wealth for wealth's sake, for comfort's sake. But help us to be a people who are sacrificial givers, who give until it hurts because we acknowledge that it is all yours anyways in the first place from beginning to end. God, we need your grace when it comes to our finances. We have been so blessed by how you have provided for us as individuals, as families, as a church. And we do pray that that would continue. And we do pray that it would continue as we continue or grow to be cheerful givers. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your financial provision for us. We recognize that it comes from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.